Attention, We the People listeners. It's time for another thrilling edition of Ask Jeff. Next week on Wednesday, August 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I'll answer your questions about constitutional interpretation live on Facebook. You've asked for a primer on the tools of constitutional methodology, and that's exactly what we'll talk about. Please send me questions in advance on social media using the hashtag AskJeffNCC or through our anonymous form at blog.constitutioncenter.org. So don't forget to join us live on Facebook on August 24th to join the conversation. Look forward very much to talking with you about how to interpret the Constitution. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we explore the history and meaning of the 19th Amendment, which says, and I'm quoting here from my National Constitution Center pocket constitution, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. And I should say that on Constitution Day, we're going to launch our free National Constitution Center app so that you can access the National Constitution Center's interactive constitution directly on your mobile devices and read it there. Uh, as written in 1787, the U.S. Constitution left the scope of voting rights undefined. The issue of voting qualifications was delegated to the states, uh, which did not allow women to vote. But after the Civil War, leaders in the movement for women's rights mobilized to expand the franchise. And uh, on August 18, 1920, exactly 96 years ago uh, today, which is uh, August 18th, states be, uh, adopted the 19th Amendment, which became part of the Constitution. Joining me to discuss the history and meaning of this landmark amendment are two of America's leading scholars of the history of women's rights in America. Gretchen Ritter is professor of government and the Harold Tanner, dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. And Susan Ware is an independent historian and biographer who's taught at New York University and Harvard University. Uh, dean Witter, uh, Professor Ware, uh, welcome. It's so great to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Uh, dean Ritter, let's begin with you. Can you tell us about the status of women's suffrage during the original Constitution? Well, as you say, Jeffrey, at, at the time of the original Constitution, voting was not considered a core right of citizenship at the national level. And I think that that's so in two different respects. One is that voting was really determined by the states at the time. And the second is that uh, there was not, there was a very thin sense of who was part of the broader civic community. It was really only the very privileged white men with property who were at that point recognized as part of the national political community. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Professor Ware, I, I gather there was a, some wrinkle. New Jersey initially allowed whip for women's suffrage but revoked the right in 1807. But then take us up to uh, the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention in New York. That produced uh, the Declaration of Sentiments. It's considered the start of the American, white, uh, the American women rights movement. But suffrage was not the focus of that convention, and um, although at the convention in 1852, Susan B. Anthony said the right women needed above every other right was the right of suffrage. So tell us about the status of women's rights 
around the Seneca Falls Convention? Well, Seneca Falls takes place in 1848 uh, at a moment when there's a lot of activism, reform going on with abolition, beginnings of women's rights and temperance. And uh, I think one thing that has always struck me about the Seneca Falls Convention is that there was really quite a broad agenda of topics that uh, the conveners wanted to put on the, on the national discussion. And uh, they involved property rights and economic rights, and one of them was suffrage. And it was very controversial, uh, barely got passed, uh, and yet it became part of the founding document in some ways for the American women's suffrage movement. Um, but I think at the beginning in 1848, it, it was not the central one. And one of the things that's interesting as the movement continues over, remember, it's going to take 72 years before the 19th Amendment is passed, is that you see it somewhat of a narrowing to focusing only on the vote, whereas at the beginning, the agenda was quite capaciously broad. Interesting. Uh, Dean Ritter, tell us more about the capaciously broad uh, agenda of Seneca Falls. There were still laws on the books denying married women full civil rights, the Married Women Property Acts, and so forth. What were the pioneers of 1848 trying to achieve? Well, I think that one way of thinking about this, and the reason that the um, move to seek the right to vote was considered so radical at the time, was that women were not regarded as independent persons at the time. Uh, going back to the, the conversation we just had about who was considered part of the civic sphere, it was only white men with property and their wives, their children, their servants, their slaves were all thought of as people who were represented by their husbands or their fathers or their masters. So the reason that suffrage was considered such a big move was because it was a way of asserting that women would be thought of as independent individuals with their own interests and not simply as people who relied for everything on their fathers or their husbands. Very interesting. Let's now talk about the 14th Amendment, which was proposed exactly 150 years ago, and we're celebrating that amendment as part of our second founding initiative. Uh, the 14th Amendment contains the first reference in the Constitution to uh, a sex classification. It, in Section 2, which is uh, less noted than the famous Section 1, it says that representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers— counting the whole number of persons in each state, excluding Indians not taxed. But then in a kind of long sentence, it says, when the right to vote at any election is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such state, then the basis of representation therein shall be reduced in proportion, which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number of male citizens 21 years of age in such state. Professor Ware, why was it that women's suffrage advocates were so upset about this uh, sex classification, which was basically an acknowledgment of the fact that the 14th Amendment did not prevent Southern states from disenfranchising African-American men because it wasn't meant to cover political rights and seemed to signal explicitly that the 14th Amendment also did not extend the right to vote to women. Well, I think there's a simple answer to that, which was very clear to them 
right away. Once you put the word mail in, you had to figure out how to get the word mail out. <laughs> uh, and that is, in effect, what the 19th Amendment does. It overrides it. They did try to stretch the language of the 14th Amendment to suggest that women already had the right to vote as citizens, uh, and that was litigated in the 19, in the 1870s, uh, and it would have been an interesting route to go, but it was unsuccessful. So they were really left with no choice but to have uh, either states amend their constitution to allow women to vote or to go to a federal amendment. So it, it was a pretty serious moment <laughs> for the movement. Uh, very interesting indeed. Uh, Dean Ritter, tell, tell us more about the uh, disappointment of uh, women about the interjection of the word male and about the subsequent efforts which Congress rejected to claim that despite that uh, gender classification, the 14th Amendment nevertheless protected uh, women's uh, political rights. So this was really a terrible moment for the women's suffrage movement. You need to remember that the women's suffrage movement emerged out of and alongside of the abolition movement uh, in the U.S., and that many abolitionists were also supporters of suffrage, and many suffragists were also supporters of abolition. And among other things, the 14th Amendment helped to split that alliance apart uh, in very personal and painful ways that, among other things, were pitting people like Frederick Douglass against people like uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Uh, and it's fraught also because the 14th Amendment is such an important moment for claiming and defining citizenship for the first time in the Constitution. It's in many ways really a response to Dred Scott, which gave its own views uh, of what citizenship was and really left it to the states. The 14th Amendment gives a sense of a national identity and claim to citizenship. And so to have that, that promise, if you will, then kind of torn away with the introduction of the term male was a very difficult uh, thing for the supporters of women's suffrage. Um, and in response to this, as, uh, as Professor Ware has just said, uh, some women thought that they should sort of ignore section two and suggest that the 14th Amendment was in fact a compacious view of what citizenship entailed, that it applied to everybody, and that women automatically had the right to vote. And you have people like Susan B. Anthony going and voting in national elections and, and being arrested for it uh, as part of what was called the New Departure Movement. Ultimately, that was not successful. And I believe it led to a much more narrow view of what the 14th Amendment entailed and required the continued movement for the 19th Amendment instead. Uh, that is a great way of putting it. And just as the, it took the 15th Amendment ratified after the 14th to grant uh, suffrage to African-Americans, so it took the 19th to grant suffrage to women because the 14th came to be recognized as an amendment that protected civil but not political rights. Uh, Professor Ware, tell us now, we're getting into this fascinating period after the passage of the 14th Amendment, when a lot of activity begins in the states. And uh, over time, um, by the end of 1919, a, a dozen states have adopted suffrage for presidential elections. More states 
uh, give women's full suffrage. And this is all the result of reforms uh, in places like Wyoming in 1869, Utah in 1870, Washington Territory in 1883. I'll just read from Akilah Mars' helpful summary. He says, 20 years after Reconstruction, Wyoming entered the Union as the first women's suffrage state. An overly simple yet re relatively robust explanation for these developments is that women were an especially rare and precious resource in the West. So, so tell us about this time when Western states and others are beginning to adopt women's suffrage. Well, I think the rare and precious commodity uh, interpretation doesn't quite deal with the complexities of the <laughs> political situations at the time. And, uh, and yet it is quite striking that all of the early victories for women's suffrage came in the West. Uh, it really wasn't until Illinois in 1913 gave women partial presidential suffrage that you moved west of the Mississippi. So there... There is something going on there. Uh, I try to think about what it would have been like to be a suffrage leader, Susan B. Anthony or Lucy Stone or Elizabeth Cady Stanton, back in the 1870s. And it must have been pretty frustrating because you had a few states with breakthroughs, but it really it was not a mass movement. They didn't have political support. They were objects of derision. And they were. it was going to take them another what, 50 years before they could get this. And yet they kept plugging away at it, and they would run state campaigns, they would organize, they would do petitions, and they had enough breakthroughs to just keep going. But it must have been such a long, hard haul to be a suffragist. Um, and remember also uh, that there are now two wings because they have split um, quite personally and, and um, politically over this issue of Vote, voting for black men. Uh, so you've got two groups working for this, but I actually think that's probably a good idea because one group can point to what they're doing and say, oh, but look, we're not like that other group. Oh, no, you know, you don't want to be with them. And just kind of gradually inch the agenda forward, keep it on the national agenda, but it's not really going very, going anywhere. Fascinating. Uh, uh, tell us, Dean Ritter, about these two Groups are, are uh, and um, and the, and uh, is this the National Women's Suffrage Association and the American Women's Suffrage Association? And tell us about how one of them uh, decided not to support suffrage for African Americans on the grounds that it was the woman's hour and it was time for them to really get the vote. And the degree to which support for the disenfranchisement of African Americans was an, uh, an unfortunate part of the uh, support that led to the passage of the Nineteenth Amendment. Uh, that, that's right. So there is a split in the original movement and the, the wing that is a, more associated with uh, Anthony and Stanton uh, becomes the wing that is more singularly and radically, I would say, committed to the achievement of women's suffrage. And in that singular focus, they end up opposing the 14th Amendment because of the inclusion of the term male there. Uh, and that helps to split this previous alliance with uh, abolition uh, supporters. Uh, the other wing of the movement is uh, more willing to take a kind of longer term view, more willing to be inclusive and reformist in their orientation uh, to this issue. Uh, also, Jeffrey, I wonder if I could uh, 
just return for a minute to the conversation about why the West? Please. Would that be all right? So this is something, of course, that lots of scholars in uh, both history and political science have, have puzzled over and have argued over and their competing explanations as to why this might be. The rare and, and precious view is one part of it. I do think there is something about the frontier tradition here, about the fact that women had to be sort of independent and more in charge of their own lives on the frontier, uh, and that people were quite aware of their capabilities in that regard, that contributed to support for their political inclusion and participation. I think there's less of a sense of social hierarchy. But I think one of the other things that matters here is that the Western states were younger. They were newer. They weren't uh, as established in terms of their political structures. So there's a greater openness to thinking about who should be included, what should citizenship mean at that point in time. Very interesting. Uh, Professor Ware, uh uh, Professor Amar once again just gives us the numbers. As late as 1909, women voted equally with men only in four Western states, comprising less than 2% of the nation's population. Nevertheless, by August 1920, some 10 million women who'd never been allowed to vote in the general election became full political equals of men thanks to the ratification of the 19th. What what happened between 1909 and 1920, uh, was there a tipping point after a certain number of Western states adopted the right to vote? And, and what were the politics uh, leading up to the proposal and adoption of the 19th Amendment? Well, there certainly was a lot going on. Yeah. And I think part of it is a generational passing of the baton. Uh, you have the original leaders like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who really dominate the movement into the early 20th century, they die, and a younger generation comes along, and they have some new ideas, uh, and they uh, try to they try some new tactics, and then there also is even a third generation of younger women, and this is a, a simplification, but they they've got some real new tactics they want to do, like having suffrage parades in the middle of cities and. Uh, chaining themselves eventually to, not chaining themselves, but picketing the White House. And so there's a lot of new, uh, they're trying a lot of new things, and they're beginning to get success. There's kind of a snowball effect where it's, by 1909, it's beginning to look like this movement might actually be successful. They've still got a ton of work to do, but they've been able to make enough success in other, in certain states and women are voting, and the and the sky has not fallen in. And then they're really getting very politically savvy about uh, organizing women as as um, petitioners and as lobbying, and then making these public statements that mean that women's suffrage is an issue that you can't ignore anymore. I think for most of the 19th century, most people could ignore it. But in the last 10 years of the movement, you couldn't ignore it. Uh, and I think that was one of the major breakthroughs that finally pushed it um, to ratification in 1920. That's a very helpful description of, of, of the social forces going on. Uh, so, Dean Ritter, we've moved from the first introduction of the 
women's suffrage amendment uh, in 1872 by Republican Senator Aaron Sargent of California, a friend of Susan B. Anthony's, that was rejected um, in uh, in a 16 to 34 vote in 1887. Teddy Roosevelt's Progressive Party supports women's suffrage in 1912. And then there are a series of amendments that are brought to the House, um, narrowly rejected uh, in 1918. It passes the House but falls short of the Senate. And then finally, uh, in 1920, the amendment is ratified. Um, Some more details about what tipped the balance, uh, which was obviously so close, and the role of World War I, which promised to make the world safe for democracy and convince many Americans that they should live up to the ideals they were fighting for. So as as you've suggested, the more progressive wing of the Republican Party, in fact, in many ways proved a little more friendly to women's suffrage at this time. And uh, Woodrow Wilson and the Democrats, and Woodrow Wilson, of course, uh, was strongly associated with the Democratic Party in the South and not just the North, uh, was much more resistant. And the South in general was the place where you had the greatest resistance to women's suffrage. And the thing that really helped to turn it around was World War I. Uh, women's participation uh, in World War I, uh, just as women's participation in the Civil War and later women's participation in World War II, helped to legitimate and create strong support for the view that women ought to be given political rights, that they stood up for the nation, that they shared in the kind of sacrifices that went on for a nation at war, and they ought to be recognized for that and be given political rights. So uh, Woodrow Wilson in particular cites this as one of the things that contributed to his change of heart. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, Professor Where, uh, as we the people listeners know, I'm a uh, messianic uh, advocate for Justice uh, Louis Brandeis, and he, he too changed his mind about women's suffrage during the 1912 presidential campaign. He gave a speech saying, I came to the conclusion after a good deal of effort that if we were to improve the working conditions of the people, it would have to be done by the people themselves, and uh, the people who needed it most were women workers, and he basically says, I became convinced we needed all the forces of the community to bring about this advance. Uh, describe how uh, Brandeis's mind was changed by working with brilliant women, including his sister-in-law, Josephine Goldmark, who helped him write the famous Brandeis brief. Did, did other men, in addition to Brandeis and Wilson, uh, dramatically change their positions? And was there a kind of tipping point around this time? Well, I'm not sure Woodward Wilson ever dramatically changed his position. <laughs> he finally had to go along with it. But... <laughs> What you're describing with Brandeis, I think, is is part of a much larger moment in the early 20th century where women's lives in general are changing so much. You use the example of a sister who was a professional woman. She had a career. You have working women. You have women who are being elected to school committees. You have women who are mobilizing for laws. It's It's getting increasingly difficult to say that women shouldn't be able to vote when they are so clearly, so heavily involved and invested in political life and that they have contributed so much. Uh, and I think, again, it's that looking around and saying, gee, you know, women really have done a lot. Uh, and World War I is another example where many suffragists 
throw their support behind the war effort, and they organize. But I do have to complicate it a little bit because one of one wing of the suffrage movement refused to support the war, uh, and this was quite controversial, and it split the movement once again. Um, but in the end, I, I do agree um, with Professor Ritter that the the women's participation in World War One, on top of their increasing uh, roles in public life, was real was a really important factor in make, in making people feel more comfortable with giving women the vote, and also seeing the rightness and the justness of giving them the vote. Fascinating, Dean, Dean Ritter. What, what, you, things happen fast. Uh, w- once the amendment was introduced on May 21st, 1919. It passed the House on June 4th. It was brought before the Senate and passed by 56 to 25. Within a few days, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan ratified the amendment. Other states followed until the amendment had been ratified by 35 of the necessary 36 states. And on August 18th, 1920, 96 years ago uh, today, the Tennessee legislature narrowly approved of the 19th Amendment, making it part of the Constitution. Describe just a little more how how, how quickly things uh, shifted, what what the tipping point was, and what the atmosphere was as this amendment, which had waited for so long, was was finally ratified. Well, I think it's it's worth remembering that in the run up to this, one of the other things that was happening across the 1910s was that many states were adopting suffrage for women, and as more and more influential states. Uh, came into that column, it meant that it became extremely difficult for their representatives in Congress to say that they would be opposed to this. So I think that was a a big chunk of kind of the dual-tier momentum that was going on in this direction. Uh, And uh, I also think you had just incredibly seasoned, experienced, committed activists who had been working for years and years behind the effort and were finally successful in pushing it over the top. Interesting. Uh, Professor Ware, it's it's so hard to imagine a constitutional amendment regarding voting uh, passing today. Was there a partisan cast to the debate? In other words, did newly enfranchised women in the states vote for one party or another, or was this a bipartisan cause? I, I would call this a bipartisan cause. Now, there are um, partisan implications to it, especially when you factor in the South, which also involves factoring in race, because there was fear uh, that if African American women were enfranchised, they would not they would vote Republican, which they usually did in the North rather than Democratic, Democratic, and that that might be a problem. Um, but as we <laughs> saw very quickly, the you know, in some ways the the losers uh, with the women's suffrage amendment, and I think this is very important for people to remember, were, were black women because most of them still lived in the South. And even after the passage of the 19th Amendment, very quickly the laws that had been used to restrict the voting rights of men were applied to women. So for, for women, for African-American women, they're equivalent of the 19th Amendment doesn't really come until 1965 with the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and so I think that's an important perspective to, to keep in mind and thinking about the politics of it as well, which who's going to support what, fam- what party. 
Um, but by the end, there was there was pretty broad support. And, you know, once people, politicians get worried that women can vote, they don't want to offend the women. So it's, it's in their interest to jump on the bandwagon. And I think there was a lot of that at the very end. Um, was there anything, Dean Ritter, special to the unusual politics of the 1912 election where both, I think all three candidates, Wilson, Taft, and Roosevelt, all came to support women's suffrage, having uh, at some point in their careers opposed it, that made it possible for the amendment to pass? I think any time that you have an election where there's a perception of uh, there being a third party factor involved and there's uncertainty about the outcome because of that, uh, people are more likely to try and be inclusive of new groups. And the fact that women by that point uh, could begin to vote in several states probably had some influence on that. Uh, and it was also a time in which you just have a broader set of conversations about progressive politics. And women were, of course, leaders in progressive politics in ways that had influence and impact on all three parties. And so I, I presume that that was a factor and influence in that as well. Great. Well, let's talk about the immediate uh, aftermath of the passage of the 19th Amendment. Professor, where before the passage of the amendment, as you mentioned, some women's suffrage advocates argued that the uh, Constitution already granted the right women the right to vote, uh, but the Supreme Court rejected that argument in the Minor and Happersat decision of 1875, basing its ruling on the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment and holding that the right to vote was not a privilege or immunity of citizenship. And even after the amendment, uh, a gentleman called Oscar Lesser tried to say that the amendment was not properly part of the Constitution uh, because uh, it destroyed state autonomy it increased Maryland's electorate without the state consent, that the ratifying conventions of some states didn't allow their legislatures to ratify federal amendments, and that the Tennessee and West Virginia violated their rules of procedure. The Supreme Court rejected all those arguments in Lesser versus Garnett and held that the 19th Amendment was uh, properly part of the Constitution. Uh, what happened after that? I mean, what sort of numbers did, did women vote, and what, were, what was the immediate effect of the amendment? Well, I was going to say, thank goodness for that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, to, to work so hard 72 years and then have it, have it taken away. Um, I, I think when I, when I think about the aftermath of suffrage, uh, there's a, there was a wonderful cartoon that appeared on the cover of the National Women Party magazine, and it, and it was a woman lying in bed under the covers with newspapers all around her that said victory and it said and the caption was every good suffragist the day after victory and there was a sense that many women were exhausted uh they had worked so hard had been successful uh, but i think what historians and political scientists have been able to show is that there was not some dramatic drop-off in women's organized political activity I think one thing that's very important for people to remember is that even when suffrage was finally, the victory finally happened, that it didn't mean that pe that women just, um, you know, rolled up their uh, activism and, and stopped being involved. That there, there's a very strong continuity between the amount of political activity that women were involved in before the amendment was passed and afterwards. 
one big issue is that it's taking place in a different political context. Uh, 1920s are an era of Republican domination in the, uh, at, on the national level. Uh, not as, it's a more conservative era in terms compared to the progressive era, which had, I think, really nurtured a lot of the final push for suffrage. So it's, it's a challenging time. And yet women know that they've got the vote now, they should be using it, and women did vote um, in good numbers. But, and they're also trying to figure out how can they get their foot inside the door of the political parties, because especially in the 1920s, 30s, that was the place to be. That was where the platforms were, were decided on, it's where the candidates were chosen, and the women really wanted to be part of that. And men weren't always so glad to have them there, and yet they knew that they were going to be an important part of the electorate. So uh, I think that's where one of the, the big battles happened in the 1920s and 30s. Thank you so much uh, for that. Uh, Dean Ritter, uh, some have noted that the amendment was striking for what it didn't achieve. Uh, Akilah Marr says that read narrowly, the 19th Amendment guaranteed women's equal right to vote in ordinary local, state, and federal elections and on ballot issues. Uh, but uh, it didn't guarantee, as uh, Jennifer Brown has noted, uh, it did not lead to the establishment of a political party for women. It was not taken up by the Supreme Court to justify jury service for women. It did not eliminate gender subordination. Tell us about the gender discriminations that remain intact after the 19th Amendment? Right. I, I think it's a very important question. So in the, in the wake of the 19th Amendment, one of the things that people have to sort out and explore is how, how much of an impact does the 19th Amendment have on women's political rights more generally? And you immediately got into questions as to whether or not the right 19th Amendment, for instance, meant that women could hold public office, whether they could serve on juries, et cetera. And I think, again, this goes back to the disconnect between the 14th Amendment and then the 15th and the 19th Amendment, because uh, citizenship initially under the 14th Amendment was interpreted somewhat narrowly as not including voting rights. Voting rights were not thought of in a kind of broader and more inclusive sense as implying other kinds of civic and political rights. Uh, so in that regard, I think many people were immediately chagrined and disappointed and Partly as a result of that, one of the first things you see is that in the 1920s, the National Women's Party moves to create an equal rights amendment to the Constitution, uh, which, among other things, also led to a split uh, that had already been somewhat present between two groups of feminists in the aftermath of the 19th Amendment, those who were called the social feminists, who were much more focused on and concerned with working women's rights, and those uh, more affiliated with the National Women's Party, who were much more concerned and focused with individual women's rights and professional women's rights, and were especially focused on the limitations that women experience who were married. 
who still could not do many things in the public realm because of marriage laws. Very interesting. Uh, Professor Ware, tell us about when those uh, Married Women's Property Acts and other disabilities for women uh, were finally repudiated uh, by the courts. And, and also tell us about how it wasn't really until the 1960s and the rise of the women's movement of the 1960s that the courts began to recognize women's equal rights to stand for election and to sit on juries striking down disabilities on women's jury service. Yeah, well, I, I think that one of the things that is clear is that the 19th Amendment didn't go as far as it might have been like to work towards a broader women's equality we would now expect, which is where we have to give Alice Paul credit for introducing it in 1923. And I think she was aware of these legal restrictions and also of the what to her was the beauty of a national amendment that would just make them all go away in one fell swoop other rather than having to attack Florida's right about keeping women off juries and Tennessee's something else. Um, but still, it was a long battle, four or five decades. It really, the tipping point there wasn't until the late 1960s when the courts began to say that some of these protections that had been put in place, women not having, if they have small children, can't lift more than 35 pounds or they can't work at night, that they began to realize that these were not really protecting women, they were hindering women. And once the, once the case law began to change, it removed one of the main reasons that had kept the two wings of the what was left of the women's movement from agreeing on the ERA. Uh, and then the ERA did pass, and unfortunately did not did not go on to be um, to be ratified. But again, it's a, it's a long process, and I think that one of the things that's interesting when we think about the you know 96 years since the passage and coming up to the centennial is how long it took, that it was taking 50 years at least and sometimes longer before some of the things that women would have hoped would have been settled by 1920 actually get settled. So it's, a, it's an ongoing struggle, I would say. Um, it's, it's so uh, interesting that you mentioned the uh, Equal Rights Amendment introduced by Alice Paul in 1923. Uh, Dean Ritter, tell us about how that resembled the Equal Rights Amendment that was introduced in the 70s? Was the, was the text similar or different? And if the ERA had been adopted, how would that change things today? Well, of course, there's a great debate over whether or not the ERA would have changed anything. Um, so the, uh, the version of the ERA that was written in the 1920s was a little more focused specifically on the limitations for women who were married. That changed a bit over time, but a version, a, a core version of the ERA kept coming up, kept coming up over all of these decades. And it wasn't really until the passage of the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s and the inclusion of gender or sex as a protected category uh, with regard to labor rights under that law that the dam sort of finally broke in beginning to imagine women as equal individuals with broader rights in the 
in the public realm that extended beyond areas like voting. And then following that, of course, it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who at the time uh, was a leader of the um, Women's Rights Project of the ACLU, who led the battle in court cases to finally get the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment applied in a way that it helped to uh, push away a lot of these kind of beneficial, quote-unquote, restrictions on women's rights that dated to an earlier era of imagining women as weak and dependent people who needed to be cared for by others. Uh, and so it's because of her success in many ways that a lot of activists and scholars still debate whether or not an ERA would have had much more impact. Very interesting. Uh, Professor Ware, what do you think about that question? As Dean Ritter said, uh, then uh, advocate uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg persuaded the court to repudiate many gender classifications. Justice Ginsburg in the Virginia Military Institute case said that we need exceedingly persuasive justification for gender discrimination, which sounds almost like the heightened scrutiny for gender that the ERA would achieve. Um, is, is the ERA uh, necessary today, and would it make a difference? I, I think it probably is not necessary in terms of a strict legal approach, and I think it is an open question whether how much it would have accomplished, and as we see from Professor Ben Justice Ginsburg's, uh, what she was able to do, a lot of what, what it might have accomplished uh, did happen anyway. But there's another way in which movements like the ERA, and I'd like to bring it back to suffrage, I think are important because they're more than just a law or an amendment. These are mass movements. They mobilize women. Uh, and so the women who were mobilized, all three generations of them, for suffrage, it changed them as women. They really they knew, they realized they had strengths they didn't know they had. Uh, and I think that the ERA is a focus for much of second-wave feminism have a similar way of politicizing and empowering women's activism. Uh, and so in that sense, even though it did go down to defeat, I think it had some important value in terms of raising issues uh, to put on the national agenda that I believe deserve to be there. Um. Very interesting indeed. Well, this has been a superb uh, discussion, but it's time for closing arguments. And uh, uh, Dean Ritter, the first one is to you. Can you tell our listeners uh, why the 19th Amendment is important and why they should care about it? Well, I really like the, the last point that Professor Ware just made. You know, when you think about the Constitution, the Constitution on the one hand, it's a design for government. On the other hand, it's a set of lofty principles about who we are as a political community. And for those lofty principles to have meaning, they need to be claimed and interpreted by any generation to be fleshed out as to what do we mean by liberty? What do we mean by equality? What do we mean by justice? And the effort to make those claims in the context of the 19th Amendment or the ERA or 
efforts to interpret the 14th Amendment in different ways are really, in the long run, a lot of what matters here. Uh, thanks so much for that. Uh, Professor Ware, the last word is to you. Uh, why is the 19th Amendment important, and why should our listeners care about it? Well, again, I try and think, what if it hadn't passed? What if women now did not have the vote? Uh, to me, that's the most important reason why it's important. Um, but I would also put it in a, in a larger perspective, the global perspective, as we've seen over the course of the 20th century, the battle for the vote has become a worldwide phenomenon. And again, if the United States had been out of step, it would have been embarrassing. Uh, and at least this way, at a moment, American women were enfranchised and then could participate in what became a much broader phenomenon so that almost all women throughout the world now do have the right to vote. And I think it's pretty cool uh, that American women were part of what turned into this larger global phenomenon. Uh, and I think we should be proud of that uh, and that it happened um, 96 years ago today. I think it's pretty cool is a great constitutional verdict <laughs> in this really interesting discussion. Uh, it was illuminating, substantive, and gave us a wonderful sense of the nuanced history of this important constitutional amendment. Uh, Gretchen Ritter, Susan Ware, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Inachi. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Many thanks and best wishes to Josh Weinberg, who leaves the National Constitution Center this month and did a great job with research for We the People. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us, editor at ConstitutionCenter.org, or email me, jrosen at ConstitutionCenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast, live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work including this podcast, and get our great communications about the Constitution. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.